Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you today. I am so honored to close out the series on Joy Comes in the Morning, which means we are finishing up our book of Philippians. And uh, so we're going to read now Paul's closing statements to the Philippian church. Uh, If you want to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4 verse 8 with me, it says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I am well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I remember very clearly one night on the road while we were traveling in the States, uh, we were leading worship at the traveling youth conference that we'd been a part of, and one of the organizers recited this verse. It wasn't in a moment of inspiration or trying to encourage the team. Uh, No, it took place after we'd finished the meeting uh, for the night and we were heading back to the hotel. And and I know I have touched on before the uh, state of the accommodation that we have stayed in whilst traveling. Uh, Sometimes you wouldn't want your child even to walk into the room, let alone uh, sleep in the room. But this night, our hotel was great. And to our delight, we walked in and we were beaming. It was the best hotel room that the conference had ever given us. And this lady slumped in her chair and said, oh, I have learned to be content with little. I have learned to be content with nearly nothing, but oh God, I'm liking this becoming content with plenty thing. And I remember it so clearly because I had never been so happy to see the inside of a two-star hotel in all my life. But Paul here is talking about a little more than hotel rooms. He tells us and describes in detail in 2 Corinthians the type of trials that he actually had to go through. It says this, I have taken more beatings and been dragged to more prisons than they have. I've been flogged excessively multiple times, even to the point of death. Five times I've received 39 lashes from the Jewish leaders. Three times I've experienced being beaten with rods and once they stoned me. Three times I've been shipwrecked for an entire night and day. I was out in the open sea. In my difficult travels, I have faced many dangerous situations, rivers, robbers, foreigners, and even my own people. I've survived deadly peril in the city, in the wilderness, with storms at sea and with spies posing as believers. He goes on to say, I've toiled to the point of exhaustion and gone through many sleepless nights. I've frequently been deprived of food and water, left hungry and shivering out in the cold, lacking proper clothing. Verse 28, he says, and besides these painful circumstances, I have to run a church. 
He says, I have the daily pressure of my responsibility of all of the churches with deep concern, weighing heavily on my heart for their welfare. And every pastor across the world says, amen. He is saying, I was content in the middle of that. He wasn't looking back with hindsight and saying, oh, I see what God was bringing out of me now. Oh, now I can see that the Lord was working it for good. He was content in the middle of the trial before he had seen the sunrise in the morning. And this is so jarring for our understanding because we question how could anybody be content in these situations? How could anybody feel content to joy while being beaten to death? A large contributing factor that Paul's, that, um, Paul's contentment in this situation is so hard for us to grasp is because we actually live in a consumer culture and the consumer culture is fueled by our, lack, by our fear of lack. Meaning if you don't achieve this level of finance, status, relationship, then joy is not possible. If you do not have X and Y, you don't have joy. Think about it. You will never see an advertisement that says, hey, don't come shopping this weekend. You've already got enough stuff. You will never see a car ad that says, you know, the car that you're driving that five-year-old car, it's probably going to last you another 10 years. These new features aren't going to get you to A, B or even C any better. You guys are fine. This culture exploits our fear of lack. I remember when I worked at McDonald's, they knew this and their strategy when creating a new product was they would create a product that you didn't even know existed yet. They just created a new product. Uh, it hadn't existed, you'd never wanted it before, but suddenly they'd advertised it and you knew you didn't have it. You'd never before craved a McDelight, but now at 9.30 p.m. at night, you have a nagging sense of lack that you need a McDelight. Parents, never before did your child realize that they had such a need for ushies. Thank you, Woolworths, for letting us know about that need. Our consumer society is fueled by our perceived lack, uh, by our perceived idea of lack. Joy then in this society is conditional. It is dependent on the absence of trials or heartache. And what can happen is this, this mode of life can seep into our minds and doesn't just remain a way in which our society runs, but it becomes a way in which we think. And when our thoughts are contaminated by lack, our hearts begin to follow suit. And we believe we're operating from a position of lack rather than a position of abundance. Romans warns us against this. It warns us against this mindset. It says in Romans 12 2, do not become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God, just as Paul said, whatever's lovely, whatever's good, whatever's right, fix your mind on this. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. This is what this means. Just because you've lost your job 
and the world tells you your joy should be shaken, Paul says that's not what your joy is built on. When you can't figure out what's going on with the health scare and the world says, how could you have peace and joy and contentment in this? Paul says, no, 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 our joy is not conditional to our circumstances. This is why Paul reminds us in chapter two of Philippians, think of yourselves the way that Christ thought of himself. How did he think of himself? He lacked nothing. Everything that was the father's was at the disposal of his use. This is what Paul says, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why? Because your thought life will determine your level of belief. And your level of belief will determine your level of joy and hope. If you believe you're in lack, you have a warped sense of what Christ has given you as your inheritance. Put it this way, uh, your level of joy and hope will be equal to the, the amount of resource you believe you have at your fingertips. When a problem comes, when a trial comes, if your joy is not shaken, it's because you know that you have an abundance from heaven. And when we operate from a position of lack, we actually violate the truth of Christ in our life. So Paul was a pretty special guy. I think we've all figured this out. He's sitting in prison, but he pens this letter from a place of contentment. So what is contentment? Contentment isn't not ever wanting more. Contentment is not allowing your lack to determine your joy. It is not wrong to want things. Why else would Paul a few verses before say, present your request to God? No, contentment is not allowing the outcome of whether those requests are fulfilled in the way that you wanted them to be to determine your whether your joy remains the foundation of your life. So the obvious question is, well, what determines our joy? Well, what determined Paul's joy? His identity in Christ. I can do all things through Christ. For me to live is Christ. His joy was defined by who he was and what he had in Christ, rather than what he lacked in the world. I don't know if you know a temperamental person. You might be in the room with them, do not look. But when you're around them, you're always kind of on edge. Uh, you don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to do the wrong thing. Don't make their coffee wrong. Don't upset them. Do not mention the war. Uh, with a temperamental person, the temperature of life or the temperature of the environment, the conversation, the social setting has to be just right. Uh, if the temperature moves to something they don't like, you betcha they're going to let you know, I don't like this temperature. They become volatile, moody, cranky. But that is not what we are called to be like as Christians. Because whilst happiness fluctuates, joy does not because it is a foundation of the Christian life. Why the foundation? Well, what is joy? Joy is strength. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And when we look at buildings, what, is this, what brings a building strength? It's foundation. Joy is actually the foundation of our Christian life. 
If you don't think uh, joy is strength, just think about times when uh, something horrific happens to people and uh, they could be lying in hospital with all these broken bones and terrible things have happened, but people ask this question, how's their spirits? What a weird question to ask, but we know instinctively that if their spirits are up, if there is hope and joy, then there's strength there then there's hope there. And the joy of the Lord is our foundation as Christians because we know there is hope not just for the future, but hope for today. Now, some of you logical and formula-driven people are now thinking, okay, great, I just have to try and be more joyful. Well, then you've already lost the battle because the battle for joy is not a matter of work. It's a matter of surrender. What Paul said here is, he said, it was through Christ who strengthens me. What is strength? The joy of the Lord. So through everything in every trial in every season, Paul found that in Christ he could have joy right in the middle of it. When we consider joy, it's actually described as a fruit of the Spirit. And uh, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's a difference between gifts of the Spirit and fruit of the Spirit. Uh, a gift is not something that you've begged and you plead and the oh, Holy Spirit, give me that. No, a, a gift from the Holy Spirit is exactly that. It's a gift. Uh, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit is different. Uh, it has a different nature. Fruit is actually given in seed form. But in the right environment, it has the opportunity to develop and mature into fruit. So what does the Bible tell us about the right environment to grow the fruit of the spirit, particularly the fruit of joy? John 15 says this, I am the vine, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So for the environment, for the seed of, the, of joy to grow, it must be connected to the vine. To bear fruit, we must be attached to the vine. You cannot bear fruit unless you're attached to the vine. It is not a matter of works, but a matter of surrender, of abiding in Christ. When I was at my parents the other week, I went to pick some lemons off their tree. And as I was picking the fruit off the tree, I noticed that there were a whole heap of lemons on the ground. Some of them were in the process of decomposing, some were on their way there, and mold was just kind of growing all around them. And that is the same for us. If we do not remain in the vine, if we detach from the source of life, especially during trials and hard times, what happens is that we might be able to keep our shape or keep face for a little while, but soon our hope and joy is eroded and we become spiritually, emotionally, emotionally and, and mentally moldy. When we detach from the vine, we actually leave a back door open to allow bitterness, unforgiveness, jealousy, anxiety, selfishness to take over and rot the fruit that the Lord had produced in us. I love that Jesus also addresses the lack mindset before he says, be in the vine. He says, you are already clean. 
You already have enough. Ephesians actually says you were chosen before the creation of the world to be his holiness and righteousness. One reason we stay in lack is because we think that our actions determine our or define our relationship with Christ. And so when we're morally failing or when our actions don't line up, we we create distance. No, the way to see this is that the relationship with Christ and the work that he has done defines our relationship. And we abide from a place of abundance, not working towards to get his acceptance. I love he says you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Live from a place of abundance. Often we forget that we lack nothing because it was actually a confession of lack that was our entry point into the kingdom. We confessed we lacked a savior. We confessed we lacked the the way to life. But it is the second confession of fullness, of abundance that actually allows the kingdom to live in us. So we're called to be in the vine through Christ who strengthens us. Psalm 16 says this, that in your presence there's fullness of joy. In his presence, joy is full, not half measure, not add this, not add that. It's full in his presence. It's a matter of surrender, not a work to get there. Oswald Chambers wrote, uh, you know you have spiritual disrespect when you're always looking for God to invite you to do something big when he simply asked you to come. Psalm 16, 11 goes on, it says, in your presence there's fullness of joy. But it goes on to say this, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is at God's right hand? Jesus. He is the pleasure. He is the fullness of joy. What was the secret that Paul learned? That Jesus actually was the prize, that he is the pleasure. If I have him, I have everything. And the cause of of joy diminishing during trials is usually because your joy was contingent on a circumstance, which is conditional joy, but contented joy. Joy that remains and you are content in the middle of the trial. Joy is an outcome of abiding with Jesus and it's eternal, unshakable joy. So when the world says, look at all your lack, look at all you don't have, look at all you haven't achieved. Let's go deeper. Look, you had another miscarriage. Look, you feel very alone, like you're never gonna find a life partner. Look, you're having trouble with the kids. Look, you think that your wife or your husband's about to walk out, yet you got a really bad diagnosis. And when the world shoves all that in your face, we can confidently say, not as ignorance to heartache, but to acknowledge truth that my joy is not set in anything that this world can give or take away, but it is set in the prize and the person of Jesus Christ. That was the secret Paul learned. That was the thing he uncovered, whether he was full or whether he was hungry, whether he had plenty or whether he was in lack. He wasn't even on that playing field. He had his eyes set on the prize who is Jesus Christ. Just to finish, I want to read the words of 
the uh, great 19th century preacher uh, Spurgeon. <laughs> Nearly got his name wrong. But uh, at, the, at the start of his first sermon that he gave in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he says this. I would propose that subject that the subject of ministry in this house, as long as this platform shall stand and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshippers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. And these are the last words from the pulpit dated 1891. He says, I, it is heaven to serve Jesus. Every man must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no masters are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it, you will either serve Satan or Christ, either, either self or savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be very hard masters. But if you wear the cross of Christ, you will find him so meek and so lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnificent of captains. There was never one like him among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us to carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind and tender, yea, lavish and super abundant in love, you will always find it in him. These 40 years I have served him, blessed be his name, and I have had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service. His service is life, peace and joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you enlist under the banner of Jesus, even this day. I wonder if you know Jesus like that. Because I wanna tell you that Christianity, doctrine, theology, morals, none of that will bring you the satisfaction like the person of Jesus Christ. No, nothing else will bring you joy, contentment, peace, and hope like knowing Jesus Christ for yourself. And if, you don't, if you've never experienced that, if you've never met Jesus Christ, you can, um, you can open your Bible or you can pray, or if you wanna get in touch with us, you can write to us just down below. But I wanna encourage you that He is the prize. And Christians, if you've had your eyes on other things other than Him, if you know your joy goes from here to here, to here to here, oh, this happened, then that happened, oh, this happened, I, I would challenge you that your eyes are on a different prize other than Jesus. He is beautiful and wonderful and kind, and He is the greatest friend that you will ever find. I encourage you to get to know Him today. I pray you're blessed and have a wonderful week, church.